Amar, bro, I know that you know this dude. Just give me his email and I will, I will give you a blanket. I'll give you a blanket and some solid food. I know that you know him. I told you before I won't talk to you. Have it your way. Let's go. Come on. When you lie to me, I hurt you. You guys met in Iran back in the 90s. I don't know! The emails of the rest of the Saudi group. Give me one email and I will stop this. Who's in the Saudi group? What's the target? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden, huh? You know, when you lie to me, I hurt you. This is what defeat looks like, bro. Your jihad is over. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in October of 2022 with episode 428 of The Corbett Report podcast, Torturing the Truth. And, as I'm sure many in the audience are already familiar, what we have just seen was a little clip from Zero Dark Thirty, that 2012 ode to torture, essentially, that got all of the details of the hunt for and killing of Osama bin Laden wrong. But of course, of course it did. And I think you will understand that particular movie, perhaps a little in a little bit greater context, if you saw my recent flashback way back to uh, the very, very early Corbett Report podcast episode number 27 on Torture is Bad, that uh, video editor extraordinaire Brock West uh, made the video version of that I released this past weekend. I think that is an extremely important and interesting piece of history that, as I have been at pains to stress in my recent work, we forget to our detriment, because it really was a foundational and very important part of the entire fabric of the War of Terror myth for many different reasons, and one of the threads uh, that wove that tapestry of that War of Terror myth and the torture, the torture story that was embedded in it was the predictive programming, is the predictive programming that 
in various ways uh, brought this issue into the public spotlight precisely so it could be the public's reaction to it could be molded and shaped for various political and geopolitical and other purposes. And we saw that. Again, if you saw that flashback or heard the original podcast way back 14 years ago on Torture is Bad, you will remember at that time um, the obvious example, the 24 torture porn that was being used to bring that debate out into the public and to frame that debate exactly in that time, in 2007, 2008, just as the torture story was really starting to break in a significant way, and there were some interesting stories coming about out about it, well, we, we see it on TV every single week. And that played out, that continued to play out, of course, after that uh, original Corbett Report podcast episode into the, 20, the late 2000s and into the early 2010s, and, of course, Zero Dark Thirty would be one of the prime examples of that, uh, venerating torture and the ability of torture to, well, I mean, track down Osama bin Laden, potentially prevent the next 9-11, and of course, you know, ultimately lead to the killing of the, the terror boogeyman, Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, right? Right. Well, just one problem. Every single part of that fairy tale is a lie, a total made-up constructed myth. And that's not even crazy conspiracy theorist James Corbett talking. That is the official story itself. For those who haven't been paying attention to the twists and turns in the torture story over the years, you've missed a wild ride. A wild ride. There has been a lot that has come out since my original report back in 2008. There's been all sorts of information, including... This pretty important piece of that puzzle that completely undermines the narrative presented in such things as Zero Dark Thirty. You know, torture's pretty bad and it's ugly and it's a it's a dirty business, but hey, it did get it it did get us to Bin Laden, right? Uh, no, not even not even the official fairy tale of the War of Terror holds that to be true, at least not anymore. So this coming from April of 2014, when the Senate torture report, or at least the redacted first part of the Senate tor torture report was released to the public, more on which later. We get this from, say, AP News. A Senate report, torture didn't lead to bin Laden, which notes that a Senate investigation concludes waterboarding and other harsh interrogation methods provided no key evidence in the hunt for Osama bin Laden, according to congressional aides and outside experts familiar with a still-secret 6200-page report. The finding could deepen the worst rift in years between lawmakers and the CIA. Oh, no. Uh, from the moment of bin Laden's death almost three years ago, former Bush administration figures and top CIA officials have cited the evidence trail leading to the Al-Qaeda mastermind's walled Pakistani compound as vindication of the enhanced interrogation techniques they authorized after the September 11, 2001 attacks. But Democratic and some Republican senators have called that account misleading, saying simulated drownings, known as waterboarding, sleep deprivation, and other such practice, practices were cruel and ineffective. <laughs> oh, such a whitewash. Uh, the Intelligence Committee's report, congressional aides and outside experts said, 
backs up that case after examining the treatment of several high-level terror detainees and the information they provided on bin Laden. And then it starts to broach the story of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the uh, accused 9-11 mastermind, A to Z, who was waterboarded 183 times, and he told them everything he knew about an important Al-Qaeda courier with the nom de guerre Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti. And then they go into the story of this Kuwaiti character and how they came to found him. And he was the courier that tracked him to Bin Laden, but it wasn't the torture that led him to Kuwaiti. It was regular interrogation methods that led to him. All of which, I mean, every part of this is this report is, of course, a whitewash, cover-up, misdirection, misleading in so many different ways. Everything down, down to the exact precise words that they use and the order in which they use them, very precisely chosen for specific reasons. Flashing back to our very recent podcast episode 426 on who controls the news, controls the world, looking at, say, things like the Associated Press and the way they very carefully control and craft language that then gets reported out on a number of different outlets that rip and read. How about this? Putting it down to, yeah, you know, the torture practices, the, sorry, the enhanced interrogation techniques which again you'll note even though they put it in sneer quotes as in to say you know this is the this is what the white house is saying but wh- what it really means is torture but they still use that term enhanced interrogation techniques they always always defer to those types of terms and then they go and say well you know those those practices waterboarding and such things and you know raping uh, p- uh, prisoners at uh, at Abu Ghraib with chemical uh, light light bulbs that have been broken and sodomized with them. Uh, Things that are truly despicable, horrible, horrible things that somehow never make it into these kind of, oh, you know, sleep deprivation. They put them in stress positions. It doesn't quite get to the heart of the matter. But then they go and say it's, it was cruel and ineffective as if, as if the argument here is, oh, you weren't being nice to these people who did these things. I mean, we know they did these things and, and you were being a bit naughty to them. Oh, and by the way, it was ineffective. A total lie, as we shall see. But then this whole fantasy story about the uh, courier that led them to the compound that by which they totally found and then killed Osama bin Laden, guys. Um, well, again, I guess it's a question of which fairy tale you're going to believe. Uh, Seymour Hirsch, of course, uh, had his own version of the whole killing of Osama bin Laden, which he published in the London Review of Books, because the New Yorker, who... I don't know if he's still actually officially on their staff or what have you, but at any rate, that relationship has been severed because they stopped publishing his stuff and he had to go to London Review of Books to start publishing things like The Killing of Osama Bin Laden, which itself is some fairy tale myth-making based on anonymous officials and other such things. But for what it's worth, Hirsch had a very different take on that whole story. He said the CIA did not learn of bin Laden's whereabouts by tracking his couriers, as the White House has claimed since May of 2011, but from a former senior Pakistani intelligence officer who betrayed the secret in in return for much of the $25 million reward offered by the U.S. So in Hirsch's fantasy land, Osama was a a prisoner of the ISI, and he had been tipped, the U.S. were tipped off about it from from a Pakistani military whistleblower and blah, 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 or intelligence whistleblower. There's a whole story to that, and a lot of it is silly and unsourced and what have you, but at any rate, that's that's what he says. And in one sense, it does, at the very least, it makes sense that, yes, the, uh, the courier was the the cover story that they went with because it later played into more propaganda where they said they got this intelligence treasure trove of thumb drives and information that was being 
couriered to the compound by this guy in order to make Osama bin Laden look like some sort of, like, this was some intelligence mastermind who was planning all this stuff, and he was a real hub of activity, and we've got this treasure trove of information that those seals scooped up as they were on their way out the door, and all of this fantasy land stuff, it just adds credibility to that cover story, or it adds another layer to that cover story. But, whatever. Whether you believe the official story of the uh, Abbottabad raid, hook, line, and sinker, or the Seymour Hearst version, or you're more realistic and say, uh, I don't believe either of those fantasy land versions and what we're not being told about them. I think, I think everyone can agree on at least one point. Yeah, I agree. Torture did not lead to finding Osama bin Laden, right? I think, again, we can, we can all agree with that. And so... All torture ever did, demonstrably, all it ever did was extract false confessions uh, out of detainees for the purposes of constructing a story. And again, you do not have to go out on the conspiratorial limb for this. This is part of the official fabric of the official narrative. So, for example, we have Newsweek from last um, 9-11 talking about why the uh, self-proclaimed 9-11 mastermind hasn't seen trials uh, 21 years later, in which they note that KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the top lieutenant of Al-Qaeda terrorist organization, self-proclaimed mastermind of 9-11, uh, has been waiting more than 15 years at Gitmo to get even have a trial, let alone get actually sentenced for whatever he's alleged to have done. So, it notes that all these years later, it's still uncertain how much time is left to go until Mohammed and others implicated in the execution of those attacks will be sentenced. And there are a multiple, multitude of reasons why the case has been delayed. Changes to the court's operations tied to the COVID-19 pandemic. Various scandals, including the government bugging the courtroom and attorney-client interview rooms. The attempted planting of a mole within a deta detainee's defense team and the frequent turnover of military judges handling the case. The biggest factor in the delay, however, has and always will lie with the federal government's use of torture on Mohammed and others at various black sites around the world, which legal experts say have thrown a wrench into any efforts to prosecute them. One decade ago, former chief U.S. prosecutor at Guantanamo Bay, Morris Davis, who led early efforts to prosecute Mohammed, said the decision to torture detainees likely discredited the U.S. military commission tasked with prosecuting them in the courts. Yeah, you don't say. Several years later, a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence released a comprehensive report detailing the extent of the CIA's torture programs abroad, ultimately finding they were torturing captives not for future prosecution, which would have been inadmissible in court regardless, but for intelligence information. Another lie which we'll get into later, but anyway. Though the federal government attempted to cover its detracts using FBI clean teams to re-interrogate the detainees in supposedly non-coercive environments, attorneys for the detainees argued there is no such thing as a non-coercive re-interrogation after the same government tortured them for years. Just saying, don't worry, we're FBI, not CIA, is not going to make them less afraid of further abuse. David Luban, a Georgetown law professor and author of a 2008 white paper on the lawfare and legal ethics employed at Gitmo, told Newsweek. Uh, the ripple effects of those decisions, legal experts say, are still being felt today. If obtained via torture, any of the evidence would be inadmissible in court, a fact that has pushed the federal government into years-long discovery battles as attorneys for Mohammed and others pursued specific details of the torture and their clients endured in CIA custody. 
And the fact that the torture has tainted almost every facet of the case has resulted in an impossible situation for both the federal government as well as the attorneys representing the detainees, giving the defense numerous opportunities to challenge the integrity of how the federal government built its case against the clients. And here's where this all ends up, and maybe this is exactly why it is meant to end up here. The truth is that at this point, there is no realistic prospect of a trial, much less a fair one, in any forum says Scott Rome, Washington Director of the Center for Victims of Torture. The only way out of this sad mess is to do what the Biden administration and the accused are trying to do, negotiate a plea agreement. And then it goes on to say that some there's some chance that the plea agreement process can afford 9-11 victims and their family members a measure of truth and justice and do so without trampling on defendants' rights. Which I think is the poison pill that was embedded in here Again, whether this is all part of the plan or at any rate, it is certainly a convenient part of what ultimately becomes the plan, which is to uh, not have a trial. Ultimately, there will never be. You'll never see the 9-11 trial. They'll never have to bring out any of the evidence and blah, 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 and have back and forth. Or Even in a kangaroo military tribunal court that was always going to, ha that the decision is already made. He's already guilty. There's no way around that. But they're not even going to have the kangaroo court Precisely so they can have a plea deal, plea it out, and no no evidence, no back and forth. Nothing has to be presented in any form. There will be nothing presented that could ever possibly even somehow leak out to the public in any way to expose anything about how ridiculous all of this is. That's the real danger to this. I, I, it's not even a danger. This is what is going to happen. Um, unless something incredibly drastic took place. But I think this is what is this is where it's going. So we have to understand that's that's precisely what this was always meant to do. This this torture puts all of this thing, all of these things in this legal jeopardy no man's land where it can never be prosecuted. It'll have to be pled out. And it, of course, it wasn't just the, the the things that they miss in reports like this about the 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 enhanced interrogation techniques against KSM and others is is the details in which the devils are hiding. So, for example, one thing that they won't tell you, at least not very uh, straightforwardly, is what was openly reported back in 2003 in The Age, where it was noted that KSM, for example, the mastermind of the September 11th attacks, you'll see, again, this phrase is used every single time. You cannot say, you cannot invoke the name of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed without the epithet, the suspected mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, the alleged mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks from A to Z. You will see that phrase every single time you ever see him referred to. Anyway, are being used by the CIA. And, and why? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Are being used by the CIA to force their father to talk. Uh, Yusuf Al-Khalid, nine, and his brother Abid Al-Khalid, seven, were taken into custody in Pakistan in September when intelligence officers raided a flat in Karachi where their father had been hiding. Muhammad fled just hours before the raid, but his sons and another senior Al-Qaeda member were found cowering behind a wardrobe in the apartment. But don't worry, Once one official says, we're handling them with kid gloves. After all, they're only little children. But we need to know as much about their father's recent activities as possible. We have child psychologists on hand at all times, and they're given the best of care. 
Oh, doesn't that sound nice? And so, of course, that was the 2003 story. And surprise, surprise, in 2009, it was a slightly different story. CIA threatened 9-11 Mastermind's children. So according to a newly declassified CIA report in 2009, American interrogators threatened to kill the children of the self-confessed September 11th Mastermind. So they told KSM they're going to kill his children if, if there's another attack. And um, they also, they talk about other things like uh, telling Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri they were going to rape his mother in front of him if he didn't cough up information, other such things. But don't worry, guys, they were just saying that. It was just, you know, they're just bluffing. They're just saying these things. They didn't really mean it, right? Anyway, those are the types of details that often would get left out of stories like these. But here's the real meat and potato. What was this really about? Uh, Of course... Why do we refer to KSM as the mastermind of 9-11 A to Z? Because that's what he said in his confession, right? What else did he say in his confession? Oh, let's let's turn to Washington's blog from 2009. Self-confessed 9-11 mastermind also falsely confessed to crimes he didn't commit. So, for example, he confessed to murdering the journalist Daniel Pearl, which he did not do. So, there you go. There's one thing that came out of his confessions that's just flat out totally untrue. We know that. People know, yeah, that was a lie. But 9-11 mastermind, well, he said it. It must be true, right? What else was he lying about? Well, how about this? Um, Another huge plot hole in the uh, confession torture testimony of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that has been pointed out from time to time. He said, I was responsible for planning, training, surveying, and financing for the new or second wave of attacks following the uh, the uh, against the following skyscrapers after 9-11. And one of them is Plaza Bank, Washington State. But one problem with that, the Plaza Bank was not founded until 2006. Now, if you really want to get into the weeds of this, um, down in the comments, they link to this um, Seattle uh, PI story from 2007, Terrorist Threat Stirs Up Old Fears, in which they, they note, according to the transcript, Mohammed referred to Plaza Bank while discussing ambitions for a wave of attacks after 9-11. It could have been a reference to the Bank of America, Fifth Avenue Plaza, near Columbia Center. What's certain is that he didn't mean Seattle-based Plaza Bank, a Latino-focused commercial bank founded in 2006, three years after Mohammed was captured. We're confused as to how we got on the list, said Carlos Guangarena, the bank's president and chief executive. We've had a little bit of fun with it over here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, whatever. You know, details, shmeetails. He was probably talking about this Bank of America, Fifth Avenue Plaza. And if you really want to get into the weeds of it, this comment um, from 9-11 Blogger back in the day dissects that and why it, he was not referring to Columbia Center and all of this. It's, it's nonsense. But I like this summary about how this guy, I commented there about how absurd it is to say that KSM must have meant something else in an already completely unreliable document. What we have here is a phantom terrorist confessing through a phantom personal representative before a phantom recorder and a phantom judge. It is a huge problem that the name is wrong. This is supposed to be his confession, and there is no way he could have known about a plaza bank since he allegedly had been in custody since 2003. So there's there's little problems in the story, shall we say, right? But again, it gets... It gets worse and worse than that. It It isn't just that they tortured him and he confessed to a killing the Easter Bunny and whatever else in order to st- make it stop. It is that, but it's other things as well. Like, oh, this. 
Again, coming from the mainstream normie source and MSNBC, you can give this to your friends and family. You are not a crazy conspiracy theorist. In 2008, they were writing about the 9-11 Commission controversy. What controversy is that? Uh, they did this report in which they discovered the NBC News analysis shows that more than one quarter of all footnotes in the 9-11 Commission final report refer to CIA interrogations of Al-Qaeda operatives who were subjected to the now controversial interrogation techniques, i.e. torture. In fact, information derived from the torture is central to the report's most crit critical chapters, those on the planning and execution of the attacks. The analysis also shows, and agency and commission staffers concur, that there was a separate second round of interrogations in early 2004 done specifically to answer new questions from the commission. Let's all pause for a moment there and breathe in the ramification, really understand what is being said in that sentence. Not only did the 9-11 Commission report use torture testimony from the CIA, they then gave questions to the CIA so that the CIA could go and torture the correct presumably, answers out of these people. The 9-11 Commission report wasn't just founded on torture testimony, it actually extracted torture testimony for the express purpose of constructing that fake report. Absolute bombshell. Totally mainstream, open, reported news for a decade and a half. Most people don't even know about this. Oh yeah, there was a 9-11 Commission report and they found this and that, right? at least one quarter of it completely constructed on torture testimony. Uh, in the end, says Zelikow, the commission relied heavily on the information derived from torture. Let's fill in the blanks here because they won't use the right words, but remained skeptical of it. Zelikow admits that quite a bit, if not most, of its information on the 9-11 conspiracy did come from the interrogations. We didn't have blind faith, Zelikow tells NBC News. We therefore had skepticism. The problems in getting cooperation from the agency enforced our concerns about the underlying interrogation. Yeah, but what did you do about it? You just printed it. Well, okay. Uh, mastermind A to Z. Good enough for me. The planes operation, guys. How do we know about that? Torture. Awesome. Um, and it, you know, it. please do read through the report, but there are important details in here, including the fact that, again, we do not have to speculate about this. Don't have to be hyperbolic. Just read the MSM admitted totally 100% non-controversial facts that there were multiple detainees who were tortured for the 9-11 Commission report who said that they gave information only to stop the torture. They, they, they say this, they admit this, that this is not controversial. They said whatever they needed to say to get the torture to stop. They said what their interrogators wanted them to say. Uh, in fact, uh, in this one case, uh, this torture only stopped when Majid agreed to sign a statement that he wasn't even allowed to read. Awesome. This is the evidence upon which the 9-11 fairy tale is constructed. I know this is not bombshell. Wow, I never, I never could have guessed to my regular audience. But this, this is the actual nuts and bolts of how this lie was constructed. It is out in the open, completely admitted in the most mainstream of mainstream sources. And yet, you're the crazy conspiracy theorist for not swallowing this literally constructed fairy tale based on evidence extracted through torture that the tortured victims didn't even get to read before they signed their confessions. This is the level of evidence that we're talking about here. And 
it, it gets worse because, again, this wasn't just something that happened. This was designed to happen this way. Again, freely admitted in the most mainstream of ways. Uh, again, Washington's blog, April 2009. Senator, government used communist torture techniques aimed at extracting false confessions. Noting um, some comments that Senator Levin made on the Senate Armed Services Committee report on torture. that was declassified at that time in 2009 in which he said the techniques are based on tactics used by Chinese communists against American soldiers during the Korean War for the purpose of soliciting false confessions uh, for propaganda purposes. So, again, completely admitted. The, the point of the torture was to get false confessions, to get them to say whatever they wanted them to say in order to construct the myth and to have here we go. We've got the confessions. We've got the evidence. Here it is. Here's a big report that no one will even read. <laughs> even people in the 9-11 Truth Movement haven't read the 9-11 Commission report. And there you go. That's all you need to know, right? And so, the, again, this is the entire point of what, uh, what, how this war of terror myth was constructed piece by piece. The 9-11 myth was constructed on top of this. And that's precisely why there has been this incredible, unbelievable, un unprecedented, at any rate, uh, scarcely imaginable, outright brazenly illegal campaign that the CIA has been waging for years to smother, mislead, misdirect, uh, muddy the waters, obscure, obstruct in any way they can this information from coming out. Like, oh, do you remember the time that the CIA destroyed tight tapes of these enhanced interrogations despite court orders? Yes, Pepperidge Farm remembers the Bush administration was under court order not to discard evidence of detainee torture and abuse months before the CIA destroyed videotapes that revealed some of its harshest interrogation tactics. Normally, that would force the government to defend itself against obstruction allegations, but the CIA may have an out. It's clandestine network of overseas prisons. See, they were using black sites that weren't really on the books anyway, so maybe they can get away with it. Well, they did. I guess they did, because they did destroy the tapes in direct contravention of, of, uh, of court orders in November 2005. And wait, let's see. How many, how many people involved in that decision or in that completely, clearly, brazenly, 100% illegal act have even been brought... In, before a judge to, to answer for it, let alone sentenced for it. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that's rounded to the nearest whole number zero. Big fat goose egg, right? Um, now, this report was from 2007. Of course, as it later turned out, it was even worse. Back in 2009, it was admitted that the CIA destroyed 92 interrogation tapes. The CIA has destroyed nearly 100 interrogation tapes of terror suspects, a number far greater than was previously acknowledged by the agency. So they even lied about how much illegal stuff they did to cover up. and But you can trust them when they say 92, guys. They really mean it this time. And it just gets crazier and crazier. Remember the time when the CIA literally hacked the Senate computers? Yeah. Again, this, this stuff happened. The Central Intelligence Agency improperly accessed, hacked, computers used by the Senate committee investigating the agency's use of torture following the 9-11 attacks, according to the CIA Inspector General Office. Again, this was not from some outside investigation. It was the CIA inspector general who admitted as much. And there's more of that uh, on that in this piece. Uh, the CIA hacked Senate computers, lied about it, and no one is getting fired. Surprise, surprise. Um, which explains a little bit about 
what they were doing and how and why. And oops, they accidentally dumped some more uh, extra documents onto the computer uh, system that was being used by the CIA and the Senate. And then, so they had to go in and delete those, but the Senate had already got them onto their own computers. So then the CIA had to go hack into the Senate computers in order to get those documents and see what else they had, by, by the way. So, again, craziness. The CIA literally hacking the Senate and other absolute off-the-chart stuff like this. And all of this swirling around the many investigations and reports and memos and documents and other things that have come out on this uh, torture story over the years in a way that is, again, it's overwhelming. There's there's this 2009 release of memo documents, but then there was also the 2009 ACLU case that re resulted in the release of uh, an OLC report, and then there's the DOJ report, and then, and then there was the Senate report itself, which, as I say, in 2014, the 6,200-page report was filed, but was immediately classified, but the findings and conclusions... Uh, of that report were leaked, including the foreword, and you can go read that online. It is available, all 525 pages of it, but then there's the other 5,700 or so pages that have never been seen uh, by the public. If you want the full story of that, there's a torture report timeline on openthegovernment.org, which goes through the history of this report and the various steps that have been taken along this path, um, including the, uh, the CIA hack, and then the declassification of the findings and conclusions, um, but the redactions of 5,400 pages withheld. Um, the report is mistakenly destroyed by the CIA's Office of the Inspector General. Um, but don't worry, Obama had a copy and he put it in his presidential archives, which means that researchers will be able to ask for uh, declassification or uh, bits and pieces or whatever part they'll put out in 2028. So keep holding your breath, guys. It's coming. Um, so the report has been preserved, but the uh, story goes on. And as you'll remember from recent New World Next Week, the story still goes on right up until 2022. U.S. Senate's CIA torture report to remain secret for national security. We grab this from 21stCenturyWire.com. Amid all their virtue signaling, we like to call it vert vulture signaling in media monarchy, and moralizing over all the alleged actions of its perceived enemies around the world, the American deep state is ever vigilant to cover up its own bipartisan war crimes. We have learned that a U.S. federal judge has ruled that a massive congressional report on the CIA's illegal war on terror torture program will remain classified, claiming American citizens have no right to see the controversial document, portions of which were already leaked to the public by a Democratic senator almost a decade ago. The report contains highly classified information about the CIA's detention and interrogation policies and procedures that would compromise national security if released, far outweighing the public's interest in disclosure. As the LA Times reports, the U.S. Senate does not have to release the full report detailing the Central Intelligence Agency's interrogation and detention program following the September 11, 2001 attacks a federal judge ruled last Thursday. Journalist Sean Musgrave sought the 6,700-page document, citing a common law right of access to public records, the legal argument conceptually similar to the Freedom of Information Act. Congress, however, is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit ruled in 2016 that the report 
was a congressional record. Musgrave's legal argument was made in an attempt to get around that limitation. District of Columbia District Judge Beryl Howell, James, who I immediately have to go look up because I immediately wonder, who's this person? Who are they married to? What have they been involved in? Beryl A. Howell, daughter of an Army officer married to Michael Rosenfeld, an executive propaganda producer at Disney's National Geographic TV. James, he helped executive produce 9-11, Where Were You?, and a bunch of other aliens and a bunch of bullplop Disney Nat Geo stuff. She was appointed by Bush Obama and involved in everything from the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, the hated DMCA, to defending the Patriot Act, to even working with the folks at the RIAA. She also, without a shred of irony, helped Senator Patrick Leahy fend off proposals to impose new limits on the Freedom of Information Act. Oh, that's right. You plebs don't get to see this valuable information. That's that's only for the rarefied gods who can see behind the walls of classification. Don't worry. You might get your hands on it in 2028 or something, eventually, in some probably, no doubt, still redacted form, just like the JFK documents, just like the Pfizer vaccine trial documents and all these other things they keep under lock and key for decades, if not generations, until they're not very politically relevant anymore. So where did this program come from? How did it start? Who was behind it? Pretty important questions, I think you might concede. And if you are interested in the answers to those questions, you might start, for example, on the editorial that I penned back last year, You Can't Win, Don't Even Try, which was really about the concept of learned, learned helplessness and then learned optimism. Um, from Martin Seligman, but that, interestingly, and perhaps inevitably, ties in with this torture story. So, uh, obviously, the link to the full editorial, available, like all my other work, 100% for free, will be in the documentation for today's episode at corporatereport.com torture. But uh, if you read through, uh, you will see in the section on Along Comes the CIA, the story of how this program got started. An old folk tale holds that you can conjure the apparition of Mary Bloodsworth, aka Bloody Mary, by chanting her name in front of a mirror in a candlelit room. But if you want to summon a real demon, it's much more straightforward than that. All you have to do is document a psychological phenomenon that can be weaponized against the population, and before you know it, you'll have the CIA at your doorstep, notepad in hand. Just ask Martin Seligman. Having long since shifted his focus from torturing animals in the name of understanding human depression, more on that in the beginning part of the article, uh, by 2001, Seligman had pioneered a new branch of cognitive psychology called positive psychology, seeking to help people overcome their learned helplessness, more on which later. As part of that work, Seligman delivered a lecture, on, a lecture at the San Diego Naval Base in May 2002 on how his research could help American personnel, in his own words, resist torture, and evade successful interrogation by their captors. Among the hundred or so people in attendance at that lecture was one particularly enthused fan of Seligman's work, Dr. Jim Mitchell, a retiree, a military retiree and psychologist who had contract, contracted to provide training services to the CIA. Although Seligman had no idea at the time, Mitchell was, as we now know, one of the key architects of the CIA's illegal torture program. Naturally, Martin, uh, Mitchell's interest in Seligman's talk was not on how it could be applied to help American personnel overcome learned helplessness and resist torture, but rather how it could be used to induce 
learned helplessness in a CIA target, and enhanced torture, as the New York Times described in a report on the subject in 2009. Dr. Mitchell, colleagues said, believed that producing learned helplessness in a Qaeda interrogation subject might ensure that he would comply with his captors' demands. Many experienced interrogators disagreed, asserting that a prisoner so demoralized would say whatever he thought the interrogator expected. Unsurprisingly, Mitchell got his way, and equally unsurprisingly, those submitted to these techniques uh, began to say whatever their interrogators expected, exactly as predicted. Mitchell and his colleague, Dr. Bruce Jessen, helped direct the uh, 2002 interrogation of Abu Zubaydah, uh, who was water-boarded 83 times in a single month, and the supposed 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who confessed to the 9-11 plot after being waterboarded 183 times and sleep-deprived for over six days. Mitchell himself even personally threatened to cut the throat of KSM's son during one interrogation. These techniques were so effective that not only did they produce the testimony that formed the backbone of the 9-11 Commission report, and thus, to this day, form the backbone of the official 9-11 story, they also caused KSM to confess to targeting a bank that wasn't even founded until after his arrest. Talk about results. In a sick way, the CIA's experiment in inducing learned helplessness proved that Seligman had discovered valid insights into a real psychological phenomenon. It certainly is possible to create the conditions to break someone's will and cause them to confess to whatever their torturers want. But this is emphatically not the point of learned helplessness research, and it is important to note that Seligman, for his part, was never aware that his research was being used by the CIA until after the Senate's re report on the torture program was released to the public, and that he completely denounced the perversion of his research when it was exposed. All right, uh, again, there's more on that, on the positive side of that in the editorial, and on how learned helplessness can be overcome by learned optimism or positive psychology or things of that nature, but I think you probably get a sense of what this torture program, where it came from, how it was founded. Uh, I would highly suggest if you do actually follow this link from the show notes that you will go and um, read more about Mitchell and his role in the CIA torture program. Um, there are links here uh, about um, uh, that link to Mitchell and and some more information about this character. Um, but to get give you a sense of that, um, remember... Remember that age story that we looked at earlier, We Have Your Sons, CIA, where they were talking about how uh, KSM's sons had been taken into custody and they were threatening KSM that they were going to kill his sons. And uh, But don't worry, uh, we're handling them with kid gloves and we have child psychologists on hand at all times and they're given the best of care. I wonder if that child psychologist might have been James Mitchell, but who specifically was threatening to cut the children's throats? Who was actually saying that to KSM? Oh yeah, that's right. It was James Mitchell. So CIA psychologist threatened to cut throat of KSM's son in quest to stop more attacks. Where do we get this information? Is this something that came out in some report or something? No, from his own mouth, in his own words. He's, he doesn't care. He's proud of it. Former CIA psychologist James Mitchell testified on Monday that he threatened to kill Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's son if the detainee failed to provide information that could stop another attack in which American children died. I will cut your son's throat, Mitchell testified, he told Mohammed in March 2003 at a CIA black site known as Blue. Uh, and then it goes into more details about the, uh, the coercive measures that were approved by the Department of Justice or with the threat to Mohammed's son, the threat to cut his throat by, by a CIA lawyer. 
and were not expected to cause lasting harm to the detainees. Anyway, it goes on and uh, it gives you a sense of the psychology of the people behind this program that it notes in this report. Nevin, uh, one of the prosecutors, also asked Mitchell about statements he gave to Matt Malcolm Gladwell for the book Talking to Strangers, which became a bestseller. I suspect it's because I'm in it, Mitchell said. So that gives you a sense of the uh, psychology of people like this, perhaps. But, um, I mean, this is the type of people that we're looking at and that we're dealing with here. And you can get more about that from um, articles like this one, um, CIA contractor details torture of 9-11 suspects, again, talking about the testimony of James Mitchell in um, these preliminary hearings with regards to the KSM and some of the other um, detainees there at Gitmo. Um, it, but going on in this report, it says Mitchell is on the stand as a fact witness, free from the threat of charges for alleged criminal conduct. conduct, conduct. In 2012, the Obama administration declined to bring criminal charges against any officials responsible for the CIA torture program. Mitchell settled a lawsuit in 2017 brought against him by the American Civil Liberties Union on behalf of three former detainees, one of whom died in CIA custody. The settlement amount was not disclosed. No one involved in the CIA torture program has been held accountable, including Mitchell, his partner, Dr. Juice, John Bruce Jessen, and those at the highest levels of the U.S. government who approved and authorized it. Rather, key figures such as Gina Haspel, the current director of the CIA, who oversaw torture at a black site in Thailand, have been promoted to senior positions. Questioned by defense counsel if he feared criminal prosecution for his actions, Mitchell replied no. He came to Guantanamo voluntarily to testify. He was eager. He was chomping at the bit to go and testify that he was threatening to cut these children's throats if KSM didn't cooperate with the uh, interrogators. Absolute, just, if that doesn't make you wretch in your throat, I don't think you're paying attention. But these are the types of characters. And yeah, people like Gina Haspel, the current director of the CIA, at least at the time that this report was written in 2020, appointed by who again? Oh, that's right. Drain the Swamp himself, Mr. Trump. Yeah, the, the defender of good old-fashioned make America great again and make torturers head of the CIA again. Um, but who else evaded their their comeuppance for their role in this despicable, disgusting, inhumane acts? People like, well, no, not Jessica Chastain, who, of course, played a composite character in Zero Dark Thirty that was heavily based on one particular CIA um, person who was from the CIA bin Laden unit, the Alex Station, as it was known, uh, that was formed in the 90s under Michael Scheuer and then was taken over, etc., etc. There was one particular redheaded uh, CIA agent from that particular unit who was definitely part of this story, and there were others who were also part of the story than the Jessica Chastain Zero Dark Thirty character was the composite of those characters, but heavily based on this person. Hi, it's Freda from YBU Beauty Personal Coaching, here with two tips on how you can enhance your eyes within seconds, no mascara required. The first tip involves using Lumify Eye Drops to... Yeah, no, I'm not joking. Um, this Freda S on uh, Instagram, who now gives life, beauty, beauty, life, beauty, life coaching tips and hawks cosmetic products on Insta is Freda Scheuer, as in Alfreda Scheuer, Scheuer, the now wife 
of Michael Scheuer, the ex-head of the Bin Laden unit, who was formerly known as Alfreda Bukowski, who was absolutely was known as the Queen of Torture. She that was that's even in mainstream articles referred to as the Queen of Torture for her part in the illegal torture program. And this comes about, about from that Senate report, or at least the parts that the public is allowed to see from 2014. Bin Laden expert accused of shaping CIA deception on torture program, and it notes that a top Al-Qaeda expert who remains in a senior position at the CIA was a key architect of the agency's defense of its detention and enhanced interrogation program for suspected terrorists, developing oft-repeated talking points that misrepresented and overstated its effectiveness, according to the Senate Intelligence Committee's report released last week. Anyway, a lot more of that in reports like these from the time that, again, are whitewashes in and of themselves that misdirect and downplay what was really happening. But at any rate, it does make the point. Queen of Torture, Alfreda Bukowski, uh, was a key part of that. And she just happened to be the uh, supervisor of Michael and Casey, a.k.a. Michelle, uh, the CIA operative who makes her appearance in the False Flags, the Secret History of Al-Qaeda documentary, a couple of times. You might remember in part two that she was the one who actually stopped the information about uh, Al-Maidhar and Al-Hazmi from going to the FBI from her post in um, the bowels of the CIA bin Laden unit, directed by Tom Wilshire, but she was the one who actually stopped that information from going through. And then she was the one who tagged along with Rich Blee, who replaced Scheuer as head of the uh, bin Laden unit uh, when he was appointed to uh, Kabul as the CIA station chief there and took over from Bernson, who was just on the verge. All I need is a couple hundred troops and we can get bin Laden and end this war of terror. No, you're not getting the two troops. In fact, we're pulling you out. And we're putting in Rich Blee and Michael and Casey, uh, the, the protege, the understudy of Alfreda Bukowski, the queen of torture. It is one rich tapestry. And these names are not common household names, but they're out there. And uh, again, you can follow up with the crazy stories that came up about this um, just from earlier this year. Ex-CIA analyst says she got bloodied in tangled U.S. war on Al-Qaeda, noting that, yes, Freda Bukowski is now the 56-year-old beauty and life coach, creating YBU Beauty. And it goes on to talk about her role as the... Um, inspiration for Jessica Chastain's character in Zero Dark Thirty, but uh, talks a bit more about what she was actually literally in the room involved in. For example, the torture of Al-Qaeda suspect Abu Zubaydah, who was waterboarded and locked in a dog box, amongst other things. So, um, yeah, she she's out there living the good life now. The CIA's torture queen is now a life coach hawking beauty products on Insta. Go follow her account, guys. Craziness, absolute craziness. So this is the this is the level of uh, uh, responsibility of, of accountability for the people who participated in this torture, illegal, completely illegal torture program. The cover up of that program, um, people who deserve to be locked behind bars for the rest of their lives are out giving life beauty coaching tips and living the good life. So. This story, unfortunately, does not have a happy ending of any sort for anyone. It is the same tale we've been hearing throughout the War of Terror, um, which is absolutely, they, they do what they want, they get away with it, it comes out in the open, completely, totally reported. Not only is nothing followed up, no accountability, but in a few years, people forget about it. Who even talks about the torture program? Ah, torture, schmorcher, I guess something happened, whatever. Who cares? It's not important. What does that have to do with us today, James? 
there's no way I couldn't make the mask my story for 2020. I've talked about my run-ins with the masquerade this past year at the grocery store. I've talked about it here on All New World Next Week. But never before, again, have not sick people been locked down. This is complete and utter madness. The most ridiculous thing I've possibly seen in my 43 years. But I think maybe what really kind of just snapped it all into focus for me these last couple of months was when I was reminded about and then did some reading on how masks have been used, masks and torture have been used throughout history. I was reminded of a story, and of course, maybe more importantly, the photographs that accompanied the story from The Guardian, May 4th, 2013. Open letter from former Guantanamo prisoners, former inmates of the notorious prison, say Obama must make good on his claim to one it closed. Spoiler, of course, it doesn't. But you look at these photos again, and it's been a long time since we've looked at the Gitmo kind of war of terror photos. But look at these photos again and see the so-called terrorists. They're all wearing face masks, man. They've got them all wearing face masks. Oh, why aren't the guards wearing face masks? Wouldn't they want to protect themselves from those dirty, dirty viral terrorists? No, not if it's not about safety and it is about control. So going back to 2013, 14 years of injustice, Guantanamo Bay from Amnesty International, and going along right with that even further back in time, fighting terrorism with torture from 2003, a study from the National Institutes of Health, which talks about some of the torture techniques. There was one kind of pull quote that jumped out at me. This involved ventilation by nasal mask with the ventilator turned off to provide transient suffocation. This essentially ties in with what is basically waterboarding. And again, look at these photos. All the dudes have masks on. None of the army men have masks on. You'd think if this were a real thing, if they were worried about some transmission, that they would have masks on. So what really then kind of brings it all together for me, James, and I was just only just going over this the last couple of months on the Morning Monarchy show, is it? When you're in the eye of the storm, I suppose it's sometimes hard to maybe discern exactly what's going on. Scamdemic lockdowns are just the latest use of time-tested psychological warfare techniques from the Cold War to the War of Terror. I got turned on to something a few months ago called the Bitterman Report of 1956. And that would be Dr. Alfred Bitterman, medical doctor, presented his report to the New York Academy of Medicine November 13th, 1956, and it was all about the techniques used by the communists, the Chai Coms, the Koreans to brainwash and torture captured American servicemen and make them psychological and physical prisoners. So he essentially put together this chart of coercion. And we can run down the chart very quickly. And, of course, everything, as always, that we mentioned, always included in your show notes. Communist coercive methods for eliciting individual compliance. And they list things like isolation, monopolization of perception, induced debility and exhaustion, threats, occasional indulgences, demonstrate omnipotence, degradation, and enforcing trivial demands. So this is something essentially, again... Researchers looked at it in the 50s and said, oh, this is what the commies are doing. Then Amnesty International 20 years ago said, this is what the war of terror is doing. And now we look at this research and it's exactly the same thing again. The chart of coercion 
pretty much looks exactly like what's been going on with the masks, James. And again, as the powers that shouldn't be, whether it's marketing or products or widgets or anything, it needs a good sort of symbol. And I think the mask is the most weaponized symbol of 2020, period. Funny, isn't it? How every single aspect of the things that were used to break down the will of the terrorists are exactly what was applied to the public in the year 2020 in order to flatten the curve, I guess? And do we even remember what that meant or was supposed to mean? Does it even matter at this point? At any rate, the precedent has been set. And yeah, oh, you know, the pandemic is over, I guess, or something. And they're going to let you do things like travel to between countries without proving that you've been taking the genetic clot shot slurry. Yay. Right? Okay, I guess everything's back to normal, guys. We can just continue to go on. And we'll forget about what happened in the past couple of years, like we've forgotten about the torture program and everything else. Right? This is how this works. No. Like every other aspect of the War of Terror, it was never about the the boogeymen. It was always about creating the infrastructure for the control of society generally, the control of you. It was always meant to bounce back around to you. And the public getting on board with the dehumanization of the enemy in the War of Terror through the Hollywood predictive programming psyop that they were subjected to, the Jack Bowers and the, the Jessica Chastains and all these other characters being flooded across their screens to convince them that, you know, it's cruel, it may, it's not a nice thing to do, but, you know, we, we got to do it to protect it. You got to make got to break some eggs to make some omelets, and it's the right thing to do. You see how bad these people are, and there's the ticking time bomb? Yeah, yeah it's not nice, but you got to do it. And now, now in 2020, 2021, 2022, well, it's not nice to walk people in their home and subject them to all this and stick needles in their arms and do whatever we want to them, but they're not, you saw them, they're bad people, they're, they're spreading the, the pandemic. We got to get them. There's a a much bigger point here about how those things that we either participate in or actively cheer on or at the very least kind of shrug our shoulders, oh, well, you know, it's, that's yesterday's news, whatever. Today the news is telling me to care about this. All of those things will come back at you because they are designed in, ultimately to get you ensnared in the evil. We are not passive spectators to things like the illegal torture program. We will eventually either become perpetrators and or victims of programs like that one way or another in the long run. So there's some pretty big cosmic points to be made uh, about this entire subject, but perhaps more to the nuts and bolts point of the podcast and what it is that I do, the data the, da the details are in the data, and the data is in the show notes. So, as always, I will direct you to the actual website, corbettreport.com torture, where you will find dozens and dozens of links to all of the different articles and things that I'm talking about today. There's a lot of data to go through, and I think we should keep things like this in mind, because it truly is the foundations for the edifice that has been erected on top of it, the War of Terror edifice, which has morphed into the War of Bioterror uh, edifice uh, that is now, uh, now ensnaring all of us. And I think uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Anyway, 
I think this is an important topic, and so I'm glad that you're here exploring it with me. I hope that you will go through and look at the sources, and if you have other things to add, as always, I encourage, encourage Corbett Report members to log into the website and leave your comments at the page for today's episode, corbettreport.com torture. Having said that, I am James Corbett of corbettreport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.